I'm Kelly Ingram. Welcome to Ancient Future Heart. So after a few episodes on the scientific end of the spectrum here, the spectrum of cosmology, I guess, I am swinging the pendulum back to myth and it feels so good. So today's episode is going to cover my personal experience with archetypes. Oh, I should say that today is about archetypes. So I'm going to talk about how I came across this concept. I'm going to walk you through what archetypes are, how they relate to myth, what the collective unconscious is, and then we're going to cover how archetypes function on both a collective scale in myth and on a personal one as well. I will be focusing on three lead thinkers in the world of myth There are in, and archetypes, and there are many, many more. So today I'm really focusing on Carl Jung's work, Joseph Campbell and Caroline Miss. Sorry, I believe her last name is pronounced Mize. I want to go back a little bit here and give you some context. As I've mentioned before, the content of this podcast first started to come to me in 2021, so two years ago now, and I started writing it as a book on cosmology, creation. I really was interested also in the concepts of heaven and earth. I am sure eventually I will write a book in some form or another. And when I began to coalesce the ideas and topics that I had been studying and had been swirling around me into a podcast, I really had a vision of making it very organized and breaking things down into succinct chapters. And that's really appealing to me on a practical level because these topics are so vast. I mean, you can see with episode um, seven started out as one episode on the paradigm and I ended up splitting it into having that first episode that's just on seeing the paradigm and then making another one about how to specifically break a paradigm. And then I wanted to talk about scientism. So I did that for our members only space on Substack. And I even am at some point going to write an essay or do one about a paradigm focused, an other episode about how I personally have moved through breaking different paradigms. So that's a perfect example of the way these topics even just one facet of one topic is so vast and it's impossible for me to cover these things in one episode. So I really thought about breaking the podcast down into book-like chapters, but I ended up going with the flow instead. So these we're going to be introducing concepts. I'm going to be introducing concepts along the way and in a somewhat linear fashion because this is a foundation that I have to build to get to more, I don't know, wild, different. There's so many things to talk about here, so many facets, and I really want to get to all of the fun conversations about ancient history. But I have to start with really like defining the concepts that we are dealing with here. And so that's why I've had a lot of these foundational chapters over the last few weeks and will continue to. And you know, for some astrology, I am a Pisces North Node. I also follow my sidereal astrology in which I'm not only a Pisces North Node, but I'm also a Pisces Sun. And the opposite sign of Pisces, the opposite energy, because everything's dualistic in our 
experience of life here on earth, at least as humans. So I was moving away from that Virgo energy. The Virgo energy is what wants to make everything into succinct, organized chapters. And as beautiful as that is, I know that that's not my highest expression and that I'm really here to go with more of the flow and let let it all unfold, be in the mystery, be in the surrender, be in the poetry of it, and that that's Piscean energy. So the next few episodes are going to be more focused on myth just because I have to unfold a lot of different angles to get ready to really dive into creation myths. And it's funny, as I started to outline this in a few other episodes, I was like, wait, I have to talk about this first. I have to talk about that first. I have to talk about this first. Um, And so this is one of those episodes where we are laying a foundational chapter for mythology by zooming out and talking about archetypes, which you can see as almost like the, the threads. So It's a little bit like how in episode six, I think it was, which is the Quantum 101 episode, that I had to talk about these these principles about subatomic particles before we get more into scientific theories of cosmology. I just think it's really helpful to have some background in quantum physics. Not that I expressed it perfectly, not that I covered everything, but just some some building blocks I, f- I shared there in some quantum 101. And I, again, I pull all the information I share with you from books, from highly regarded sources. I'm not making this stuff up. So if subatomic particles are the threads with which scientific theories of cosmology are woven, Archetypes are like the threads we use to weave the tapestries of myth. So there are a few different ways that we can think about myth. In Western societies and schools, we're taught to think of myth as imaginary, these made-up stories. And there's something in that about simplicity. And I remember getting this impression when I was a child and learning that maybe my I, that's just my own inference about the simplicity which is actually the opposite of what myths are they are highly complex and there's this insinuation that myths being made up or imagined you know it's it's all I feel like when we were in school and I even just bought a scholastic actually it was from the library and buy it, it took it out of the library scholastic book about that's the name of the scholastic sorry scholastic book about I think it was the moon and because I was talking to my kids about the moon and we were reading about it in the page on the moon about the myths of the moon literally says ancient people made up stories to explain the moon and that's just so aggravating to me how condescending it is how incorrect it is and the unwritten story there what's there if you read between the lines is that ancient people indigenous people are archaic that they're primitive that they are inferior and that could not be farther from the truth another way that we can see myth and another function of myth is as history. And I touched on this in episode five on the nature of myth, but 
myths were part of the oral traditions of cultures and civilizations before, you know, I talked about how prehistory is anything that's before writing. That's literally how we define it in this modern time. And so, of course, myths held historical elements. And we have this tendency to look down on oral traditions today. But before writing and can still now in indigenous cultures, the people in in these cultures and in these societies who pass down the myths, they are history keepers. They are revered members of society, the holders of the oral tradition. They have to go through usually extremely rigorous training. They're often picked, you know, there's usually a genetic element of this. They come from maybe the same family within the tribe or the culture that they are then trained, sometimes chosen as a child and trained throughout their entire lives to develop the skills necessary to hold these oral traditions. So memory skills, storytelling, insane amounts of memorization. This is no joke. And it it was always like this for thousands and thousands of years and still continues to this day in indigenous population. So these are wisdom keepers. This isn't a, you know, fallible silly game of telephone not at all and that's why there are and i mentioned this in episode five that there are multiple scholars in fields in anthropology who have demonstrated how oral traditions can hold history that goes back thousands of generations literally to the ice age period of 9,000 and 12,000 years ago. And I remember one thing I read was about indigenous Australians correctly dating the ice age. And this was all carried through oral traditions and often, not always, but often couched in within the myths themselves. And yeah, that's that is very much connected to the flood stories, which is a topic that I am so excited to dive deep into. At some point on Ancient Future Heart, it's actually probably one of the main things I want to focus on are stories about the myth, the archaeology, or sorry, stories about the floods and archaeology around the floods. So another function of myth, myth is creative. It's imaginative. It's an artistic form of expressing ideas about life and its meaning. But that imagination comes from somewhere, right? Imagination is that is an inspiration based on observations, lived experience, stories, it's it's pulled from somewhere and it's always reflective of some human element, something about life. And imagination isn't just things that are made up out of thin air and myths certainly aren't. Myths carry incredible wisdom and reflections of the intricacies, the suffering, the ecstatic experiences of being human. Myth is spiritual. So one really essential theme we're going to come back to again and again here together is the mystery of how cultures held the same stories. And we're going to get into that a little bit today, but they held the same myths or at least the same themes. And I'm talking about people who were not geographically connected as far as we know. So, you know, Greek gods and Scandinavian gods or and 
gods as far as Australia, Africa, North America, South America, there are gods and spiritual beings and stories that have the same themes and the same almost archetypal profiles. And that is extraordinary and reflective of something, (laughs) you know, some really interesting, whether it's you know, maybe maybe there is something in the collective unconscious or in the spiritual realm that is transmitting this. Or maybe it's just that these stories are reflective of a common human experience in that they tend to um, alchemize themselves into stories around certain things. If that, And this is all going to make more sense as we get into the stories themselves. And I'm of the opinion that it's probably all of the above on different levels. But myths, it's important to say, were part of ancient people's religion, their spirituality, how they connected with God and the divine. And myths were full of gods and beings that were very, very real to ancient people and places too, I should say that, places. I personally do believe in the spiritual realms and I've had my own mystical experiences that support this. And if you're a spiritual person, you get it. If you're not that's totally fine. But just so you know, this podcast is going to be here for the mystical and the metaphysical. And if you only want logic, you might want to go somewhere else. If you're just here for physics, you know, that's not what this is. That's not who I am. And that's not what I'm sharing here. And I would encourage you to study experiences of near death. I would encourage you to look at scholars and scientists who are working with psychedelics and plant medicines because the themes, the similarities that come up in these ecstatic experiences, we're actually going to get that into that a little bit more next episode, are really striking and they are very much tied in with the tradition and the experience of myth and storytelling of myth. And Yeah, so lastly, I do want to say that myth is about giving form and shape to the intricacies of human experience. So we're going to get into a little bit about the collective unconscious today and how that could have to do with how how myths may have similar themes, even though these people did not have any contact with one another. But myth is really an expression of the human experience. And what are, what do we call these dominant themes and patterns, the characters that arise again and again in mythology? These are archetypes. I first discovered archetypes through Carolyn Mize, the spiritual writer, mystic, intuitive. So Mize has written multiple New York Times bestsellers, the first of which is called Anatomy of the Spirit, which was the first book of hers that I read. She That book is, she was a medical intuitive first. It's very similar to Louise Hay's book, You Can Heal Your Life. It talks about the spiritual and emotional roots of illness. Mize was popularized by Oprah, of course. Um, I first came across the concept of archetypes in one of her other books, called Sacred Contracts, which is about our personal archetypal patterns as a system of self-understanding. And since then, Mize's current work, she is very focused on archetypes today. And Mize believes that humans are naturally meaning-seeking beings. And if you didn't listen to episode three about 
the psychology of purpose and meaning, go back and listen, because I explained all that now. And my talks about how specifically we as humans are moving through the process of understanding our power. So archetypes are vast, rich, and very individual. And she describes archetypes as the universal patterns of power, how we are all governed, all of society and culture by power. And we are in this constant creation process of the vast, infinite, universal experience of existence. And it's all about, this is her theory, it's all about power. You know, essentially what she's saying, I'm not explaining it that well, but essentially what she's saying is we are within the powerful experience of the universe, of this vast cosmos that we exist in. And that vastness itself is so richly powerful beyond our wildest imagination. And it almost calls to mind, to me, I'm just thinking of the very famous saying from Judeo-Christian religion, and it's in very uh, many other religions, of the idea that we are made in the image of God and we are reflections of that vastness of the cosmos is reflected in in humanity. And so it's like we are grappling with that power and our own power. And she sees archetypes as being a mode through which we understand ourselves and understand the the power of the cosmos itself and of earth and of earth itself. Earth, just earth is a incredibly powerful place and think about the elements and all of that is very much held in mythology. And I really like this point that she makes about how as science and technology evolves, we have to always keep working to re-understand who we are and what we are within the context of all of these new realizations. And that's very reflective of what you'll find here with Ancient Future Heart. And I think that's why I really love and enjoy this work, because it does force you to you have these realizations when you come across this new information or information you were not personally aware of about the nature of reality and whether it is, you know, the objective truth. I'm not here to say that. And I think that's always going to piss people off. I'm just here to show you all of the different theories out there and all of the different angles. And of course, I have my own opinions and I'll share those here and there but I'm never saying that this is right and this is wrong but as we come across new information and new realizations and that's part of why I'm you know never stuck in my own beliefs because I don't know I might come across new information that totally changes my life and that's happened to me so many times so every time that happens we have to re-understand who we are in the context of this new widened, as I call it, a cosmic perspective, this higher vision of what life is and what humanity is, what consciousness is. And so Mize believes that we are in a transformational time. And that's why as the pace of technological discoveries and advancements continues to quicken, realizations about energy and consciousness, as all of this is unfolding, that's why archetypes and myth are so essential. Our 
it's like we are grappling with the potential of creation itself and no, no other time in human history can you can say have humans been so creative i mean think about in the positive of social media you know there's a lot of downsides of social media but there are so many people creating so much art so much content so much information all day every day that's just one microcosm one little way to see this think about the huge so many different companies right think about how few companies there were a hundred years ago and now there are so many and so think about silicon valley think about just the huge rise of prosperity yes there's still so much war and horror but there is very generally a huge amount more of prosperity than there was a hundred years ago i mean there is a fraction of the amount of people in poverty now than there were a hundred years ago so we have to keep that all in in mind and I think that it's really fascinating how Mize brings up that this is why archetypes are so important right now because we are grappling with this question of why of creation more than ever before. And I'm going to return to Mize a little bit at the end. Her work around how to personally understand your archetype, I've your own archetypes, I'll talk about that a little bit at the end. It's completely changed my life. I first started looking at it a little bit probably like four years ago, but I didn't understand the power of it then and I don't think I was ready on some levels, but I've personally been working with, I mean, astrology and human design, that's archetypal too, but I mean literally like the stories of archetype, the characters, the themes. I've been working with my own archetypes I'm very much immersed in it now as a form of self-healing. It's probably the dominant thing that I'm using as a form of self-understanding and healing. And it's completely changing my life. It's just, it is so powerful. So we're going to jump from the personal back to the collective and get into the work of Carl Jung. To understand archetypes, the way we conceptualize them in the modern sense at least, we have to go to Carl Jung, the 20th century psychologist. If you're familiar with his ideas, maybe you're familiar with the concept of shadow work. It all began with Jung, who was a student of Freud's who went a very different direction. So Jung believed that the human psyche, which is, what is a psyche? You could say it's our consciousness, it's the totality of our being, the combination of body, mind, soul, which spiritual traditions and ancient cultures have always viewed us as layered beings, I have to point out. But Jung believes that we have three parts, the ego, the personal unconscious, and the collective unconscious. So the unconscious, in general, is the part of the mind that contains memories, patterns, and impulses that we are not acutely aware of. The collective unconscious are the memories, patterns, impulses that are common to the whole of humanity. They can be seen as physical, inherent in our brain, our DNA, our wiring, and they can be seen as spiritual and emotional. While the personal unconscious is shaped by our individual experiences and our unique personality, the collective unconscious is ancient. It transcends the individual. It's the primal collection of knowledge and imagery imagery that we all share, and it is inherited. 
To return to that tapestry metaphor that I mentioned in the beginning, the collective unconscious is this tapestry and the archetypes are the threads with which it is woven. So archetypes, to define it, are signs, symbols, or patterns of thinking or behaving that are inherited from our ancestors. Myth is naturally the first expression of these patterns, their origins, and their purpose as told through the vehicle of narrative and story. So archetypes like myths transcend words. Jung often said that they are not capable of being made fully conscious and expressed. And this is why myths in their form, they're so vast, they're so intricate, they're so weird and bizarre if you really get into the nitty gritty of ancient myths. And they're difficult, if not impossible, to comprehend literally. They are felt. So archetypes are that specific energy within that it's it's like the ingredients of the myth is the archetype. And I'm going to read this quote from Young, which is the primordial image or archetype is a figure, be it a daemon, a human being or a process. And by daemon, he means like a spiritual being that constantly recurs in the course of history and appears wherever creative fantasy is freely expressed. Essentially, therefore, it is a mythological figure. In each of these images, there is a little piece of human psychology and human fate, a remnant of the joys and sorrows that have been repeated countless times in our history, end quote. I feel like the best way to understand this is through an example. And if you listen to episode one, I talk about the archetype of the trickster and how this energy is very dominant in this podcast. It's one of my personal archetypes. And so you can go back and listen to that. But here's a little bit more on it here, which is I want to place all notions, you need to do this now, right? Do it right now. Place all notions of any archetype, period, being good or bad aside, because no archetype is good or bad. They are all dualistic. They're all multidimensional. Everything has its shadow. Everything has its gifts. And so let's go back to this example of the trickster, which also shows up as the messenger in myths. And whether you're reading about it or listening to an ancient Greek myth about Hermes or a Hopi Native American tale about the coyote, you're going to notice that a lot of the themes are the same. A traditional trickster theme is hunger, for example. This is really about, and you know, stories about, an, you know, in, in, um, in a lot of the coyote myths and raven myths, you know, those animals were chosen in many ways to be the trickster because they are the scavengers, which has to do with hunger and how hunger is just this primal human impulse that we can't control. And in trickster stories, the trickster is often very short-sighted and he makes, or usually it's a masculine energy, but it's also kind of, um, neither and both. So the trickster tends to make mistakes that end up turning into essential lessons about the nature of humanity. And this is how the trickster is often a messenger. The trickster can often cross boundaries that other can't. For example, Hermes 
in Greek mythology is the only god allowed in the underworld. And he's known for um, bringing humans down to the underworld. He's known for bringing Persephone back and forth to the underworld in winter and fall. And in Native American stories, Coyote as well tends to have these myths where he visits the underworld and interacts with the dead. So remember that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Native Americans, and these are just, there's so many trickster stories all throughout the world in Africa, in Loki, in Scandinavia, in Asia. I mean, all over the place, there's tr in trickster myths. And these are just the ones that we know too. Remember, like we just, we just have the information we have. There's so much that's been lost to time. And these people, though, had no contact with one another that we know of. It's not like they were trading stories, but the same themes grouped into the same characters within their stories with similar meanings and lessons have just come to coalesce on their own. And that is the archetype. And that is why it's connected to this idea of the collective unconscious being perhaps the astral, imaginative, emotional... Um, you know, non-local, you could use the word qualia, a place that we pull these ideas from. So it, it really transcends space and time. And it's really a mystery to us still how ancient people had these complex layered stories with so much commonality in them. And what you'll find as we get into more about myths, and I'm going to do my best to share actual myths with you, at least the ones I can find, because I am not an indigenous person. I haven't had them passed down to me personally, so they will never be whole as they can be. But it's really important to read myths themselves because of how they make us feel. It's, it's really like poetry is the closest thing that we have now, and they are poetry. And it's about how they make us feel as humans and touch places inside of us that we cannot necessarily put into prose, into literal words. So it's also important for me to point out that archetypes are fluid. They are not static and they're not fixed. And there's this false belief I mentioned on the mentioned in the beginning about how myths are made up and ingrained in this is this idea that they're shifty, that it's, you know, like um, a game of telephone almost. And but and yes, myths have evolved and they've morphed over time and as have the archetypes. It's actually a way that cultures, including our own, we naturally have a tendency to adapt stories to better suit our current needs. And this is done consciously and subconsciously. So if you think about it, if you are a parent, you could think about how you might change a story slightly to better tailor it to the interests of one child or another, or maybe you're trying to teach a certain theme. Um, you can think about children's stories like Aesop's fables and fairy tales that are so much more ancient than we even realize and how children's stories and fantasy changes over time depending on perhaps what what the children of a current generation need to know. And a lot of cultures did this consciously. The Egyptians, for example, they would consciously change their myth over time to better suit what the people 
um, what the culture was needing as perhaps a form of stability. We really don't know. So back to Jung's theories on archetypes, he defined dominant archetypal patterns in the collective unconscious, such as the persona. So the persona is our mask. It's how we present ourselves to other people. It's how we adapt. The way that this archetype is spoken about in astrology is it's your first house. It's often associated with Gemini. Um, another Jungian archetype, by the way, Jung loved astrology, but another Jungian archetype is the shadow, which is very well known. And the shadow is our repressed memories. It's our thoughts that become automatic personal patterns and actions, and they tend to be some of our more undesirable behaviors and tendencies. So that's like a massive archetype, right? There's important to keep in mind that some archetypes are larger than others, some are more specific, some encompass others, many are related and overlapping. This is not the world of black and white thinking. This is, this is the world of myth. So another one I want to mention is the anima or the animus. And this is the idea of how we we hold masculine and feminine energy within all of us, that we all have both, even if we are a man or a woman. And so that we're all expressing and moving through both in, you know, making sense of our mothers and our fathers and all of that. So that's the anima and the animus. And then there's the self. The self is the wholeness of our personality. And I want to say that archetypes are obviously primordial as are myths, as are the collective unconscious. Jung was really just giving name to what he sensed existed and what had always existed. He was just putting together a succinct theory, a, a theory that's succinct enough for our Western minds to understand, right? It's really its own myth that we have been able to better understand it. It's it, it's exactly what I was just saying about how cultures change their stories. And so he was one of the first people to draw forward myths out of their hiding place because the Western world had really put the art form of storytelling in the proverbial garbage can, um, framing myths as primitive, uncivilized, false tales, that they weren't believable. Um, and there were others before Young who talked about this and they just didn't use the exact same language. For example, there was an anthropologist named Adolf Bastian in the 19th century who called archetypes elementary ideas. Um, and archetypes are really just a way of understanding, right? This is just a story that we tell ourselves to understand what myths are, their purpose of them, what what they're doing, really. And so that is young. And now I want to move on to talking about Joseph Campbell because we can't talk about archetypes without talking about Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell is a famous writer and thinker. He's probably one of the most famous 20th century writers and thinkers on the subject of myth and archetype and specifically the hero. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But he built upon a lot of Jung's ideas or at least wove them into his work. And Campbell's work was really key in helping people, us, all of us, identify the archetypes around us. He did a lot of work based on studying myths across cultures and then finding common 
character archetypes. He's most famous for identifying the hero archetype and the stages of the hero archetype and the hero's journey in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. So obviously, like I was saying just a minute ago about Jung, Jung didn't invent myth or archetypes. Campbell didn't invent the hero's journey. He detected it and gave name to its common trajectory to all of the steps in stories as he observed the same theme, the same cycle happening in so many stories across thousands of years across culture. And it's perhaps even he did it in a way where he made it into, by identifying it, he gave it a certain power because it's now seen as a formula, a mythic structure. And it's famously, most famously probably used by George Lucas. He literally used Campbell's work to direct the crafting of Star Wars. And so many have used Campbell's work consciously since he came out with it to craft stories. But obviously, Campbell was just giving name and shape to something that he saw in storytelling across time and space. And in that way, Campbell brought archetypes and the concept of myth back to the surface of collective consciousness. And he brought it forth in a way that it was embraced by the masses. I think that the hero, the hero, whatever, a thousand faces, sorry, I'm not saying it right. The hero with a thousand faces sold almost 3 million copies. Um, his theories are taught in English classes throughout the Western world. And part of what I'm wanting to convey in this episode is how these various thinkers and teachers in the 20th and now the 21st century, such as Campbell, Miss, and Mice, and Young, that they have been bringing back to the surface myth after it's been ignored for a very, very long time due to the Enlightenment and the focus on rational thought, due to Christianity's views on myth as being pagan, myth and thus archetypes and thus a, I mean, unbelievably powerful way to understand ourselves as human and the human experience and the collective consciousness itself have been repressed for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so I want to just share this one quote by Joseph Campbell, and we are going to get way deeper into Joseph Campbell in the future, in future episodes, but this episode's getting pretty long. <laughs> so let me just read you this quote by Joseph Campbell. It's, mythology is not a lie. Mythology is poetry. It is metaphorical. It has been well said that mythology is the penultimate truth, penultimate because the ultimate cannot be put into words. It is beyond words, beyond images, beyond the bounding rim of the Buddhist wheel of becoming. Mythology pitches the mind beyond that rim to what can be known but not told. End quote. So the reason I keep talking about archetypes and now define this idea, and I want you to keep it in mind at this point going forward as we move through creation stories in the next few episodes and over the course of the entire lifetime of this podcast is because of my own personal experience in that when I first came to creation myths, I was familiar 
with the concept of archetypes, but I didn't have it in mind as I began studying myths and ancient creation stories. And because I didn't understand archetypes, when I went to read these myths and creation stories, I wasn't able to understand them and I wasn't able to see them. And it caused a really profound disconnect in me. And what happened was I started to read these ancient creation stories and without, you know, I'm very much a child of um, America (laughs) in that, you know, my grandparents were the children of immigrants and they came, you know, Irish on both sides and they came over and there was just disconnection, right? From, I wasn't raised with Irish myths and Irish stories and I think that that is a really big topic to get in, get into. I actually have an essay about this on my Substack, but I think it's a huge reason for a lot of the malaise that we find in America is that we are completely disconnected from our heritage, from our ancestral stories. And so the world of myth not being raised with ancestral stories is what I'm trying to get to was very um, foreign to me. And so when I started to read them, I mean, obviously I'd read them as a child, but when I came back to start reading creation stories a couple years ago, they felt really violent, to be honest with you. And they will, they're shocking. I mean, we're talking about stories that have a lot of incest, a lot of war. I mean, it is one of the most common themes in creation stories is that the world was created from the dismembered body of a god, you know, that was ripped limb from limb by either its parent or its sibling and planted throughout the earth. And that's what created the world as we know it. And so that felt really jarring to me. And I wasn't... I wasn't seeing the stories at first. This is like when I first started reading them and it took me time to start reading the ancient context and start understanding the archetypes and the symbols. And this is really how a lot of Christians, I mean, across time, including to this day, miss the mark when it comes to archetypes because there's, you know, a lot of, in the a lot in the Old Testament, especially about how we should not worship other gods. And so a lot of people take this to the extreme where they think that any and all myths, any conversation about, you know, the gods or goddesses that might be in old myths, that's evil and that's bad. And it's actually like completely missing the point of how in the Old Testament, you know, that they were told, do not worship any other gods. If you understand that in the context of the ancient Hebrew people, um, they were in wars, they were, you know, coming up against other tribes that believed in other gods. This was all about coalescing the identity. It was less spiritual and it was more about a way to coalesce the, the identity of these people and help you know, were, uh, Yahweh himself was actually a, that figure, that name, that word comes from um, the Canaanite, original Canaanite pantheon of gods. So there is an immense amount of 
context to be understood in things like this. And the reason I bring it up at all is just because I'm trying to say that interpreting life literally, interpreting myths literally is going to get you nowhere. Nowhere. You're just going to get stuck in muddy dogma. You're going to be trapped. You can't see the forest through the trees. You can't grow and evolve as a person. And you can't be who you're meant to be when you're caging your mind with rigid beliefs that are not reflective of reality. Myths are not evil. Ancient gods and goddesses are not evil. It's all archetypal. And it's all a vast, complex system of stories that's been slowly... Designed isn't even the right word, but it's come, it's been manifest over time by our ancestors, each in their own corner of the globe, to help us make sense of life. And you know what? Life is violent. <laughs> life is mysterious and life is filled with suffering. And so you will find that reflected in myths as we start to get into them. And the way I believe is the best to work with myths is through this archetypal lens. And that's the way that reading these stories is going to be the most rich experience for you. That's how you're going to find it gratifying and life-changing, in my personal belief, is that when you choose to relate to these stories through the experience of your own life and your own self, you just have this profound mirror. Again, it's like, it's poetry. And so I want to quote Campbell again here. This is on the hero's journey. And he says, the implication of the mythic images is that deities are symbolic personifications of the very images that you are of yourself. These energies that are of yourself are the energies of the universe. So the God out there the God is out there and the God is in here. The kingdom of heaven is within you, yes, but it's also everywhere. And that, that's it. That's the end of this episode for today. I'm really excited to just continue on this path with you and to continue diving into specifically the world of the very, very ancient, very, very first myths that we have, that we have, because we have what we have, and there's so much missing. We just are dealing with fragments, um, and it's important to honor those fragments, but also to honor everything that we can't see, and we won't know, because that's just, that's just as it is, you know, that's just what's made its way through time, and what hasn't, hasn't and that's really the power of the collective unconscious though because it's still these stories they sit somewhere deep within us and that's what um it's like an echo when we when we start to study them so i can't wait to see you next time if you haven't i would if you've been listening a lot and you haven't done this yet i would so deeply appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are. Um, and then if you want to learn more, if you want some more of the private episodes, the members only episodes, you can go over to kellyingram.substack.com and join us there.